Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Good morning, OKC community. Come on, that's what I'm talking about. How can you not have worship like that and just be about ready to fall off your seat? Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. Why y'all got to make me cry before I even come up on the stage? You know what I mean? Hey, God is moving in this place and so excited. I just love our worship team. I love the heart that they come with. Um, I just want you guys to know the joy of my week is to come here. The joy of my week is to see each and every face in here. And I know the staff feels that way about you guys. Every one of them. So... I told y'all, you shouldn't have done that, because now it's on. (laughs) So, all right. Hey, so we have been in this series (laughs) in James, and uh, it's been an incredible series. Uh, And James has this idea, this idea that we've been working through of authenticity, of being authentic in our lives. And that word has really just been sitting on me over the course of the last couple weeks as I began to pray for this. We said the title of it was James, Authentic Faith. And I think sometimes when we hear that word authentic, Tim talked about it in the first week, you know, you think of that, that painting. Is it authentic? Is it the authentic artist who made this painting? And I think it's really easy for us sometimes to even, when we hear the word authentic, we think, am I being the authentic me, right? Isn't that what we normally think? And, and definition-wise, that's actually what it means. But as I sat on it this week, I thought, well, all of us kind of know what authentic means, but I want to look up the the dictionary meaning of it. And in the English language, okay, first one, not false or an imitation, real, actual, exactly kind of what we've been talking about, you know, considering the painting. But these other two, these are the ones that got me. Conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features. And made or done the same way as the original. I think every one of us would agree that our hope is that we want to be authentic. We want to be real. But here is what the Spirit whispered to me this week. More important than being the authentic me is conforming to the original. For my life to reproduce essential features of the original. Because guys, there is an original, only one. The only one who lived a perfect life, the only one in ultimate humility came off of his throne in heaven to come to earth as a child, lived his life in the most humble way and then literally gave himself up on the cross for our sake. And this morning, we're gonna take a look at how we can imitate some of these essential features of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, so how do you live a life of humility? If you've got your word with you, I want you to open it up to James. We're going to be, chapter 4 is kind of the one that I've been given, but I'm going to jump back just a little bit to the end of chapter three, and then we're gonna go into four, okay? So read along with me. We're gonna start in James 3, 13. 
And it says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. For such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now let's go to the beginning of four. Jump ahead just a little bit. For what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James introduces a problem at the end of three and at the beginning of four. That there is a battle that is going on. There is a battle that is raging. And the battle is happening in the heart of every human. Since the beginning of time, no one, not one of us, has been discounted from its wrath. It shows up first thing in the morning. It walks with you all day. And it lays its head down with you at the end of the day. And that is the battle of self. As James says, selfish ambition, envy, desire, covetedness, pride, self-pleasure, we struggle with the self. We all want to be unnoticed. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to be smart. We all want to succeed. We all want to be special. We all want to live comfortably. We all want to gain more ground. We all want control. We all want to secure our place. We know, we want to know that we're taken care of. We want to know that our kids are taken care of. So we push, we strive, we market, we study, we create, we try to get ahead. We plan, we set goals, we search forward. We think about ourselves a lot. Our goals, our hopes, our dreams. We are living in a world that has been and is continually pushing us to make the self most important in your life. In many ways, we are addicted to self. So, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not addicted to self. Well, there's some indicators, okay? And as I go through this, maybe you'll hear something that you kind of go, oh, okay. Number one, entitlement. We believe we're owed something. Maybe it's because of family status or financial status or your educational status. Maybe it's because of age. Do you feel like you're owed something? It's probably a struggle with self. When we do things to be the center of attention, if you find yourself talking a lot about yourself, if you find yourself being the loudest person in the room, you probably struggle a little bit with self. <laughs> when your prayer life is weighted around the ass of God for yourself, instead of praising him or worshiping him, instead of praying for other people, you probably struggle with self. If you can't remember the last time that you went out of your way to help someone else, 
Now, I'm not just talking roll your window down and hand somebody a dollar, okay? I'm talking you actually had to change your schedule and give something up to help somebody else. If you can't remember that last time, you probably struggle with self. If you have a schedule or a plan for the weekend and it gets interrupted and you're mad about it, you probably struggle with self. Just ask my wife. Whew. If you don't want to hear instruction, okay, if you don't want to hear instruction or you don't want to get feedback or you find yourself saying a lot, oh, I know, I, oh, I know, you probably struggle with self. When we stop asking for wisdom from not only God, from, but from people around us that have a lot to offer, you struggle with self. When you take God off the throne of your life and decide, I got this, you struggle with self. And lastly, when you are constantly taking pictures of yourself, your activities, your cat or your dog, for the sake of, my family loves this stuff. Yes, selfies. I mean, literally, you, you, and for you young ones, you don't really understand this, but for those of us who are old enough, it's only in the last 20 years or so that this has been around, this idea of selfies. You know what I mean? Never before in the history of man has there been such documentation of self-love. Constantly. You know what I'm saying? The average teenager, it says, takes about seven selfies a day. Okay? Now, teenagers, I don't want you to think that I am on you, okay? Because your older parents or associates or siblings, they're catching up to you in a lot of different ways, all right? As social media grows, there's an area that even the most mature of people and the greatest of believers have fallen prey to. And they do so at the same level as you, or maybe even more so than you. And that is self-promotion. Promotion of our lives, promotion of our families' lives, how great things are, how special our children are. All of it feeds into this idea of self. Self-righteousness, self-gratification, self-promotion, self, self, self. So guys, I think if all of us were to look down deep inside and ask the question, Lord, do I struggle with self-centeredness? Do I struggle with self-ambition, self-envy, selfish desire, pleasure, pride? I think that most, if not all, would say yes. Yeah. I would. I struggle with it every single day. Once again, just ask my wife. <laughs> Now, before you get too down on yourself, I want you guys to know that this has been happening since the beginning of time, right? We can look back to the very first book in the Bible. Why did Eve grab the fruit off the tree? Now, come on, she wanted some more of that knowledge. Wanted to be godlike. Why did Cain kill Abel? Ah, Abel had God's blessing. Cain wanted that blessing. Envy, desire. David took Bathsheba. Why? Entitlement, 
Come on, envy, desire, pleasure. Why did Peter deny Jesus? Self-preservation. Why did the mother of James and John come to Jesus and literally ask if her sons could sit on his right and left in heaven? Come on, self-promotion. It is all over the place. Why did Jesus give up, or Judas give up Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Self, self, self. Story after story. This has been an issue we've been dealing with for thousands of years. But does it mean that, okay, well, if we've been dealing with it for so long, we should just let it go? We should just go with it. No, that is not what James is saying. To do so would be inauthentic because it would not produce essential features of the father or the son. Because not only is something that is opposite of all that the Father and Jesus taught us about how we should live. But the battle of the self, if given a chance to grow inside of you, guys, it will literally kill your soul and push everyone that you love away from you. So let's go back to the passage. Back to James. And we're going to, in verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is trying to explain a very simple law of human nature that says you cannot be two opposite things at the same time. Because if you say you like one thing, it would be inauthentic to be the other. Let me give you guys a few examples. For those of you who know our senior pastor very well, you know that he is a Tom Brady fan. You know, and when Tom Brady was with the Patriots, that made him a Patriots fan, right? So what if Tim Mannon were to walk out on this stage on Sunday morning with a Denver Broncos jersey, a Peyton Manning Denver Broncos jersey? Would that be authentic? I don't think so, because you cannot inherently be a Tom Brady fan as well as a Denver Broncos fan. It is literally impossible, I know, because I'm a Denver Broncos fan. <laughs> Even if you're just saying it's because I like Peyton Manning. I mean, who doesn't like Peyton Manning? And he's the real goat. I mean, just in my own opinion, okay? So you can't be those two things. If you claim to be a foodie, you cannot walk in this place with a long John Silver's bag, okay? It just does not happen. One plus one does not equal zero, all right? That's crazy talk. You cannot be an OU fan, even an OSU fan, and wear the colors burnt orange. You just cannot do it. It is not possible to be one and do the other, all right? So. This world is enticing, guys. It's easy for us to think that we can just live in two different worlds. Follow Jesus, yet be dragged away by our selfish ambition and our selfish desires. The enticement of being bigger, better, more powerful, and making the pursuit of self 
king in your life. James is saying you can't have both. It's either friendship with God or with the world. He says that friendship with the world means enmity against God. You know what enmity means? Opposed. That means you would be opposed to God. He goes on to say, do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? It's an interesting scripture. There's not another place in the Bible that it says this, okay? And so it's a little bit hard for commentators to understand where he's trying to go with it. I really like the Passion Translation because most of my commentaries kind of go this way as far as what it means. And the Passion Translation says, does the scripture mean nothing to you that says the spirit that God breathed into our hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us. A lot of the commentaries said that James is really getting at this reaction that a husband or wife has when their spouse has cheated on them. Because they have given them all of their life, they have given them something, have entrusted them with something that they have done to nobody else. And this is how God feels when we choose to walk the way of selfishness and pride. He feels like a jealous lover. James is plain and clear with his language about the struggle that we have with self. And he's clear that there are two paths that we can take. Friendship with God, friendship with the world. So, before we move on, Okay, I want to take a look at a story in the Old Testament where we see two people that took two different paths. It's one of my favorite stories. The life of David is really one of my favorite people in the Bible. And this is the story of David and Saul. And it's a long story. It's in 1 Samuel. I mean, it starts back in 2019 and goes through 27. I would encourage you this week to, to go and kind of read that if you haven't heard the story before. So I'm just going to simplify the story a little bit. And then there's a couple of scriptures that I want to share with you. Now, the story of David and Saul, the fir very first time that they meet, okay, Saul is the king of Israel. And David is this, you remember this young boy who comes and says that into his tent and says that he can defeat Goliath. And what does David do? He goes and he defeats Goliath. And the Bible says from then on, Saul kept David at his side, basically grew up in his house. He ended up marrying Saul's daughter and his best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, as David grew, he became the highest ranking official in the Israelite army over everybody. And there's a portion of scripture that says the people are cheering. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. And this scripture infuriated Saul. And so what happened inside of Saul? A seed was planted of selfishness. A seed was planted of envy. A seed was planted of ambition in his heart. And it grew to the point that he wanted to kill David. This boy that had grown up in his home, that was best friends with his son, that married his daughter, he literally 
sought out to kill David. So, this is how the story goes in 1 Samuel 24. He finds out that David is in the valley of Engadi, I think it was called. And they get into this valley, and the, Saul's army stops, and he sees this cave. And it says that he went up into the cave to relieve himself. So I know it's not pretty. You know what I'm saying? But he goes into the cave. Little does he know that David and his smaller army, his band of brothers, are hiding out in the back of this cave. David's brothers are like, God has delivered him right into your hands. All you have to do is strike him down and you will be king. And Saul comes in and David can't do it. And he reaches out and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Saul leaves the cave. He goes back down to his army. And David comes running out. It, the Bible actually says because he feels bad about cutting off a corner of the king's robe. And he cries out to Saul. Saul, Saul, why did you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Craziness, right? And what does crazy Saul say? He says, David, you've treated me well. And I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? He says, may the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. In a time and a place where David was within his right to kill Saul, had he killed him, everybody would have celebrated. David would have become king of Israel. But wisdom and honor and humility and most importantly, the voice of God inside of him kept him from taking what wasn't yet his to take. David on that day humbled himself, not only before Saul, but before God. It's not surprising that God called David a man after his own heart. Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, I want to look at those two people, Saul and David, real quick. And I just want to look at some of the characteristics of the paths that they took and where it led them. Okay? So first of all, Saul. Saul went down the road of selfish ambition, jealousy, hate, envy, desire, pride. And what did it lead him to? Premeditated attempted murder charges put in jail. That isn't what happened. In today's day, that would be what happened. 
David had a whole other set of characteristics. And I want to take you back real quick to James again. At the end of chapter 3, it says this. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Two different people who went two different ways. And this is, this is a list that James said, but David fits every single one of those. As did Jesus. So, what was the biggest difference between these two men? Where did they go wrong on the path? One, one of them made a practice of humbling themselves before God. And one turned his back on God. One of them believed God was the only one who had ultimate authority in his life. The other felt he was entitled to all of the praise. One believed that wisdom from God surpasses that of worldly wisdom and pursued it. And one started listening to the naysayers, the worldly men, who, as it turns out, were just after things for themselves anyway. In essence, David had God securely on the throne of his life. And he was in constant contact with him. And guys, that just didn't happen overnight. You remember when David was young, he was a shepherd. So every day he was out alone in the fields with the sheep. And who do you think he had conversations with? Maybe sometimes it was with the sheep. But most of the time, it was with his heavenly father. He had learned in those moments that throughout life, you have to stay connected to the Father. Back to our passage in James. It said, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And I love what James does next. Because a lot of the verses that we've looked at They've been pretty pointed, pretty harsh about this thing of self that is going on in our life. And in verse 6, he says this. It starts with, but. But, comma. Anytime you see that in scripture, God's going to do something. So he says, but he gives us more grace. Come on. Guys, we are so enticed by this world. We live in a world that it is very attractive to think that the things of this world should draw us in. And sometimes they do. But what does God say? He says, he gives us more grace. What is James saying? Excuse me. <laughs> James, follow that 
follows that passage of grace with probably one of the most quoted scriptures, and it actually came from King Solomon originally. And James changes it just a little bit, but he writes, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Shows grace to the humble, one version says. Humility, humility, humility. Like I said, it wasn't just that it happened with David. He'd been practicing that idea of staying close to God all of his life. When I was younger um, in ministry, when I first went into full-time ministry, I was a worship pastor. And for the first six months to a year with the church I was at, I was also the youth pastor. <laughs> Crazy small church, right? Yeah. So there was this concept that I would talk to the kids about, and it was called the tetherball concept, okay? Anybody remember tetherball? I don't know that it's actually on the playground anymore, but it was one of my favorite when I was growing up. And let me tell you a little bit about tetherball. Okay, tetherball, there's a pole coming out of the ground, or sometimes it's in a wheel with cement in it, whatever the case may be. It's about a 10-foot pole, and it's got about an 8-foot rope on it. And then there's a ball on the end of that rope. And there's two people, they play against each other, right? And the, the idea is you hit that ball and you gotta get it over the person on the other side and that ball winds around and you just keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it until that ball finally spins and hits the pole. And when it does that, you've won, right? Okay? Now, in tetherball, when the ball is far away from the pole, that's the best time to be on defense. Because when you hit that ball, it moves slowly. It gets all the way around. It takes a long time for it to make itself around the pole. But the longer and the quicker that that ball gets to the pole, the faster that ball starts to move. You don't want to be on the other side when that guy is just wailing that ball and the, and the pole is right here because that thing is spinning like 40 miles an hour and I've seen, I probably have taken one in the face before. You don't want to be in that place. Why? Because the closer to the pole that that ball gets, the more power there is. The more mission that ball has to get to the middle the more strength that ball has as it's coming around. And just like our spiritual lives, if you spend all of your time being this far away from God, you're not going to have any power. You're not going to have any strength. You can dip your toe in here every once in a while, but the world is calling you. The world is enticing you. The world is saying, come on, be about yourself. Get bigger and better and faster and stronger. But the closer you get to that pole, the more God's strength and power and mercy and grace can fill your life. And there lies the difference between David on the inside and Saul on the outside. David was just closer to the source. That is where he got his power from. It wasn't him and him alone. It was the blessing of God on his life. 
because he had the heart of God. So, back to finish up this passage. We get to verse 7. It says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Just like in tetherball. The closer the ball gets to the source, God is there. Come near to him, and he will come near to you. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's kind of a strange piece of the part there, but what he's saying is, take that self and get rid of it. Mourn it. Kill it. Get it out of the way, because it's only holding you back in your relationship with God. And then it ends at the end of this stanza, at the end of this teaching. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Once again, what did Jesus say? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Is God on the throne of your life? Are you humbly coming before him every day? Asking for power and strength and wisdom to walk in this world. Because guys, we need it. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is what James is trying to get us to do. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow. This world is enticing, and it's attractive. And the self in you will win this battle unless you have the one in your heart who makes worldly treasures look like rubble. If he's holding your heart, he will lift you up. In just a moment, we're going to sing the song, Build My Life. And I want to invite you guys in an act of humility today. If God's been speaking to your heart, to come down. Over the course of the last three weeks, we've been asking three different questions. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? And I would just ask you, has the self or the world kept you from making that decision? Maybe today is your day to humble yourself before a mighty Savior and give him your life. It's the greatest decision you will ever make. Second question, are you growing in your faith? Is pride keeping you from growing? Humility says, Lord, I want to become more like you. I want to reproduce essential features of your character. And do I need to lay myself down to do that? 
And then the third question is, do you need help with anything? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're going to worship here in just a moment. I've asked our prayer team to come down, and they're going to be in the corners. And I'm going to leave an opportunity for you. If you just want to come down and pray, you can pray at the benches. Up in the balcony, I'm going to have somebody up in that top corner, up at the top. If today you want to come and get prayer, there'll be somebody up there as well. Family, together we have the opportunity to walk this humble life that isn't about ourselves, but it's all about glorifying God and reproducing essential features of who Jesus was. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, that you have shown us the way. Lord, that with every step you took, it was in humility every single time. And I just pray in this room right now, Lord, that you would move in every heart. Father, that you would show those places in our life where we tend to hide the self. Self-ambition, self-envy, jealousy, pride all of these worldly things that, Father, are against us. Help us to humble ourselves before you today, Lord, so that you might pour out your grace on us. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.